We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Psalm 3. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. pray. Lord God, what a comfort it is to know that there is nowhere we can go to flee from your spirit. If we try to hide in the darkness, even the darkness is not dark to you. And so we pray that you would come and meet every single one of us this morning in the darkness. Meet us in the darkness of doubt. Some of us are here and we are wondering if we can ever really be sure that you exist. If we could really ever trust that you love us and that you can change our lives. Some of us are here and we are feeling stuck. We have been looking for you to meet us in our troubles and our problems, to lift us from our burdens, and Lord, it feels like nothing is changing. Some of us are here having once believed and wondering if we can ever believe again. And all of us, God, all of us bring worry to church this morning. Many worries that we're not even aware of. We all have darkness, and so we pray that you would speak into the darkness, that you would make the night become light as you make Jesus magnificent to us through your word. Lord, we need you to do this, and so we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we are starting a new sermon series, which we are, it, do we have the graphic? There it is. Uh, we're calling it Authentic Faith, a series in the Psalms. Why are we going through the Psalms? Well, we're studying the Psalms because the Psalms is actually a book about you. The Psalms uh, teach you how you could bring your true self 
to God. All your guilt, all your sorrow, all your anger, all your doubt, all your exhaustion, all your envy, all your defeat, all your joy, all your gratitude, all of it. God wants the real you, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. Uh, The Psalms gives us language to bring our true selves to God. We're also studying the Psalms because the Psalms are a book about the brokenness of this world. They talk about some of life's biggest problems, problems like injustice and oppression and violence and aging and mortality and loneliness and broken families and poverty and so much more. We're studying the Psalms because this is also a book about Jesus. The Psalms consistently point us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus through prophecy. It points us to Jesus through really beautiful pictures of God's grace. It points us to Jesus through poetry about salvation. And so Jesus quotes the Psalms throughout the New Testament. And if you read the New Testament, the apostles quote the Psalms also to teach us about Jesus. This is a book about Jesus. If you want to understand who Jesus is, the Psalms is actually one of the best places to go. And we're studying this book because the Psalms are really about our great hope for change. The Psalms show us that God can change us. God will change our world. And in the Psalms, God turns lament into praise. God turns sinners into saints. God turns injustice into justice. God turns death into life. And so God meets us where we are, but he does not leave us where we are. He changes our lives, and he will change our world. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dive into a lot of these deep lessons about who we are, about who Jesus is, about how God is going to make all things new and how God is going to change everything as we look through this series. And today we're starting with Psalm 3, which is a psalm about worry. Um, Worry is a a subject that all of us can probably identify with. Uh, Worry has been on the rise over the past few years. And if if you look it up on the internet, no one's quite sure exactly how much it's risen, only that it has, because... It's actually very difficult to gauge how much people are worrying because people are not honest about their worries, and people sometimes don't even understand their worries. Worry sometimes masquerades as anger or resentment or impatience or regret or depression or even just low-grade stress. And so Psalm 3, which is written by David, shows us how to understand our worry and move beyond our worry. And one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that David never actually loses his worry. His worry doesn't actually disappear. Psalm 3 is not a don't worry, be happy psalm. David is actually brutally honest about his worry. And as he brings his true worry to his true Savior, he finds a reason to offer true praise. 
And that's the hope of the gospel, that God gives us a reason to praise him even in our worry. A few years ago, I did this ropes course with my family. Um, if you, you've ever done one, you know they're, they're pretty scary. A ropes course is basically a scary obstacle course that takes place at, at dangerous heights. And they exist to help you get over your fears. And at this, the end of this ropes course, they had this challenge called the leap of faith. Uh, you had to go up on this small platform 30 feet above the ground and jump to catch this trapeze bar. And uh, let me tell you, I had no faith in my ability to make this jump. I'm an out-of-shape, middle-aged dad. No faith in myself. But I went up and I made the jump because they gave me a harness. <laughs> I had no faith in myself. My worry about catching that trapeze bar never disappeared, but my faith in the harness was real. And so I was able to jump. I, wasn't wor- I was worried about missing, but I wasn't worried about falling. Now, some of you bring big reasons to worry to church this morning. And the hope of the gospel is not that you'll get rid of these worries. The hope of the gospel is that God will give you a grace that is bigger than your worry and a reason to praise in your worry. And we're going to see how God does that by breaking down this psalm in three parts. Number one, we're going to look at what your worry reveals. Number two, we're going to look at why worry, uh, worship can transform your worry. Why worship can transform your worry. And number three, we're going to look at how we can live beyond our worry. So let's start with the first point here, what your worry reveals. Uh, The first verse of Psalm 3 sets the stage for the rest of the psalm. David writes, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? David was facing real danger in this psalm. According to the heading Uh, which is also in the Hebrew Bible, David wrote Psalm 3 while he was running away from his son Absalom. Uh, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel and crowned himself a rival king to his father and started a rebellion, which became a civil war. When David learned what had happened, how Absalom, his own son, had turned against him, he fled for his life. Uh, most of his soldiers and some of his most trusted journals, uh, generals went over to Absalom, and David was left with only 600 soldiers against Absalom's tens of thousands of soldiers. And so David fled for his life. And that's where he is as he writes Psalm 3. You could read the story about David and Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18. When David wrote Psalm 3, he was facing real danger. He was in exile, he was outnumbered, he was outmaneuvered, his kingdom was unraveling, his family was unraveling, his life's work was about to go up in smoke, his son was trying to kill him. David had good reasons to worry. Many of us have good reasons to worry this morning. We're not fighting a civil war, but every single one of us is fighting a battle of one kind or another. Maybe you're fighting the battle of depression. Maybe you're fighting the the battle of loneliness. 
Maybe you're fighting the battle of chronic illness. Maybe you're fighting the battle of failure. We're fighting battles, and these battles make us worry. Maybe you're fighting the battle of fear, especially in the light of all the shootings in the news lately. We all have good reasons to worry, and notice what happens to David in his worry. His worry actually leads him to a crisis of faith. In verse 2, David writes, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. As David worried, he couldn't help wondering if God would do anything, if God would help. Worry will force you to wonder if God is real, or even worse, worry will force you to wonder if God even cares. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, bitterness says God got it wrong. Worry says God won't get it right. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever thought God is never going to get it right in my life? God is never going to get it right in this world. It's one thing to face problems. It's another thing to believe that you're completely on your own, that God does not exist, or even worse, if God does exist, he doesn't care. So what do you do with doubt like that? Well, God actually invites you to take your doubts to him. That's what David is doing here. He took his doubts to God. He complained about the real problems he was facing. He told God, basically, I don't know if you are going to do anything about this, God. I don't feel like you're going to get this right. God put David's words in the Bible so we can know that he wants to hear our honest worries, our honest doubts. He wants us to be raw and real with him. God does not want you to pretend. God will not love you more for sounding nice, and he will not love you less for sounding raw. God doesn't love you for the way that you sound. He loves you because of who he is. He is a God who will never stop loving you because he never began loving you. He has loved you from eternity past, before you were created, before you were even a thought in anyone's mind. You can bring your honest worry and doubt to God because he loves you. God also wants you to bring your doubt and worry to him because he wants to transform you. He wants you to be honest with your worry and doubt, but he doesn't want you to get stuck in your worry and doubt. He actually wants to pull you out of it, and he can. Which brings us to our second point, why worship can transform your worry. Psalm 3 takes a dramatic turn in verse 3. Up to this point, David has been complaining about the danger he was facing, and suddenly in verse 3, he shifts to worshiping God. He goes from saying, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, to, but you, Lord, are a shield around me and my glory, the one who lifts my head high. What happened? What changed? What changed was worship. David began to worship God. David stopped fixating on his problems and started fixating on who God is. And when he did that, as he began to worship God, 
everything changed. In fact, worship is the only thing that can help you with your worry. Have you ever tried to talk someone out of their worry? Have you ever told someone, just stop worrying? It doesn't work. Because no one can be argued out of their worry. We actually need to be loved out of our worry. And that's what happened to David as he worshiped God. He realized that God loved him. God loved David out of his worry. He loved David out of his false security and loved him into true security. God loved David out of his false significance and loved him into true significance. God loved David out of his hopelessness, his false hope, and loved him into true hope. You see, it used to be easy for David to find his security in his power. He was pretty successful. He was the king of Israel. He lived in a fortress. He commanded the largest army in Israel. And now all of that was gone. He was left with 600 soldiers against the tens of thousands of soldiers of Absalom. And that's, that's the thing about power. Power is fleeting. It never lasts. I had a conversation with someone in our church recently, uh, who told me when he got his PhD, that's when he started to feel like he had to prove how smart he was. Wouldn't you think that like, that's like once you get your PhD, you're, you're bona fide smart. <laughs> but he said science is basically the art of proving to other scientists that you're not an idiot. <laughs> right? Which is actually not that bad if you understand that you're going to win some and lose some. But if you find your security in the power of your intelligence, the second you feel like an idiot, it will crush you, it will destroy you, you will feel exposed, you will feel attacked. See, power can only provide a false security. As David worshiped God, he realized that only God could give him true security. God was his shield. That meant his security didn't depend on him. It didn't depend on his ability. It didn't depend on his power. It depended on God's love. David felt secure even though he was losing. He was losing in life. He was losing the battle. He lost his throne. He was losing his family. He was losing everything. But he knew that he could not lose God's love. And in God's love, he found true safety. Have you found that safety? Or are you looking for safety in some sort of power that seems always out of your reach? If only if, if only if I have this, then I will be safe. Well, there's nothing in this world that can keep you safe but God because all power in this world is fleeting. It used to be easy for David to find his significance in his children. I want us to consider like, the import of what is happening in here. David lived in a tribal society where your significance did not come from your accomplishments. It's very different from the lives that we live here in America. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, you found your significance in your family. And notice what is happening to David's family. When Absalom was born... 
his third son, David named him Absalom, which means in Hebrew, father's peace. Ab, which means father. Shalom, which means peace. Absalom. Can you imagine how David must have dreamt for the legacy his son would, le- would build for him? How his son would bring peace to him in his old age and peace to his family in his old age. How David must have imagined how people would praise him for his family, for his children. But here, Absalom did not give David peace. He gave him war. And as David left Jerusalem, he left barefoot, weeping with his head covered in shame. He was a complete failure. As David worshipped God, he realized that his true significance could only be found in God. God was his glory. God was the lifter of his head. His significance did not depend on his family, his legacy, his children. It depended on God's love. God didn't lift up David's head because David had done so many good things because David was perfect. He lifted his head because he loved him. And he could lift your head because he loves you. If you have a significance that depends on you, you will always find reasons in this life to hang your head in shame. But if you have a God who lifts up your head because he loves you, no matter what happens in life, no matter how big you fall, no matter how much you fail, you will always have a reason to hold your head up high. It used to be easy for David to make things happen. People used to line up in his court to make requests of him, to ask him for justice, to ask him for favors. That's what a king did. Now David was the one waiting in line, making requests of God. He was powerless. There was no way that he was going to get out of this. His only hope was that God would hear him and answer his requests. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor who preached in England in the 20th century, he, he said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Have you experienced that? I know I have experienced that. It is so much easier to do things for God than it is to ask things for God. Prayer takes hope out of your own hands, and it puts it in God's hands, and that is scary. And it's hard, because it means that you're letting go of control. But as David worshipped God, he realized that true hope was in God and not in himself. He didn't have to have all the answers. He didn't have to know how he was going to get out of this jam. He 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 didn't need to know how to defeat Absalom. All he needed to know is that God loved him and that God would hear him and that God would answer him. And when he called out to God, this didn't take away his worry, but it did fill him with a hope that was bigger than his worry. What would your life look like if you had true security? If you could know that no matter what happens to you, whether there is a recession or not, whether you keep your job or lose your job, whether your family stays together or splits, no matter matter what happens to you, you will be safe. 
What would it mean for your life if you could know that no matter what happens to you, you have a significance that is so meaningful, so deep, so beautiful that you could hold your head high no matter what? What if you had a hope that could not be defeated? A hope that even when you face tens of thousands, you know is bigger than anything that could be against you. God says you could have all these things and you could experience them in worship. Theologian named James K.A. Smith calls worship the tractor beam of the heart. Don't you love that? A tractor beam of the heart. He, He coined this phrase during a time where he was suffering depression and he realized all his theology, all his philosophy, all his intelligence could not help him out of his depression. He could not talk himself out of his depression. He needed to be loved out of his depression. And that's what he found in worship, a tractor beam of the heart, pulling him up, pulling him out of his depression, pulling him into the presence of God. That's what we get to do when we worship God. This is not merely a place to hear things about God, but to receive the love of God the tractor beam of the heart. Some of you may be thinking, why hasn't that happened to me yet? I've been coming to church. My heart is exactly the way it was when I first came here. Maybe you're not convinced of the claims of Christianity and you thought something might happen, but it hasn't happened. Well, let me encourage you to keep putting yourself in the way of the tractor beam of the heart. Keep coming to church, not only with an open mind, but with an open mind heart, because what we need is not only for God to change our minds, we need God to change our hearts. We need to know in our bones that we are loved by him. And if there's a God who can change your mind, there is a God who can change your heart. Some of you may be thinking, I love worship. I get filled up when I come here, but I don't know what to do the rest of the week. Once I leave church, I forget it all. Monday morning, I forget it all. What do I do? How do I keep this going? Well, you need to know that we have a bigger purpose in life than to merely get rid of our worry, to merely experience uh, uh, something beautiful on a Sunday. The purpose of life is not to be carefree. The purpose of life is to live for the kingdom of God. This brings us to our last point today, how to live beyond your worry. In verse 5, David tells us that he slept, which is beautiful, because if you've ever struggled with anxiety, if you've ever struggled with worry, you know that it's very hard to sleep. Your body desperately wants to rest, but your mind won't let it. Now, David's situation hadn't changed. He was still surrounded by tens of thousands of enemies. His son was still trying to kill him. He was still in danger of losing everything, but he slept. Worry has a tendency to push you beyond your limits, but when you put your hope in God, you can accept your limits. You can rest. You can sleep. Worship gives you the freedom to rest in Jesus. But notice that David didn't stay in bed. After resting, David prepared to face his problems. That's why 
He says, I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. He's writing in the future tense. He's writing about something that is going to happen. He is going to face his problems. He is going to face his enemies. He's getting ready for the future. His worry is not gone. He could see his problems just as clearly as he did when he first went to God. But now he also sees God clearly. He sees his hope clearly, and that changes everything. There's a Christian counselor named Ed Welch, and he he says that worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. That's what worry does. It makes you into a pessimistic visionary. (laughs) When you worry, you start to imagine everything that could go wrong in vivid detail. And you act like a prophet. You act like you could predict the future. You're like the Steve Jobs of your life. And you you start to, to, to make predictions. You say things like, I will always be unlikable. I will always be damaged. I will always be poor. I will always be unhealthy. I will always be sad. I will always be alone. I will always be ugly. I will always be angry. I will always be terrible with people. I will always be ashamed. You see, God gives us a different vision for our lives. David closes this psalm by writing, arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. That sounds really violent. I was up at the church office with Brent this week. We are looking through this passage, and he just paused at that. He's like, you're going to preach that verse. <laughs> Why is this in the Bible? What is going on here? David is actually describing what it would look like for God to make everything right. Picture David's enemies as savage beasts, and God punches them in the mouth, breaks their teeth, and they're left toothless, harmless. That's what David is imagining here. That's what David is praying for here. He's praying that God would make everything wrong right. Isaiah chapter 2 gives us a vision of a world where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Imagine a world where all guns and assault rifles are melted into spades. That is what David is praying for here. A world where violence and evil gets punched in the mouth and is down for the count. Imagine a world where injustice is no more, where everything is made right. That is what David is imagining here. God gives us a vision for his kingdom. You see, we need a vision a better vision, because if all you want is a worry-free life, you will still be hostage to your worry. But if you are living for something that is bigger than your worry, the vision of the kingdom of God, you will have something beyond your worry that you can live for. And that is what God is calling us into the rest of the week. Why does he give us rest? So we can arise and go.
testifying to the kingdom of God that is breaking through into our broken world. Harvey Kahn is a theologian who spent years ministering to prostitutes in South Korea and working with urban churches in Philadelphia. And he talks about the early church this way. He says, they became revolutionaries Christian style. They touched hypocrisy and turned it into reality. They touched immorality and turned it into purity. They touched slavery and turned it into liberty. They touched cruelty and turned it into charity. They, turned, they touched snobbery and turned it into equality. We need a bigger vision to live for than simply being worry-free. And God gives us this big vision, a big vision for us. But if that were all, we would all be doomed. Because the truth is we need more than just an inspiring vision. We need redeeming grace. And that is why it is so incredible that Jesus suffered and died on the cross. David prayed that God would strike his enemies on the jaw. One day God will do that. God will strike evil in the face and evil will be down for the count. But don't you realize that Jesus was also struck in the face? In John 18, verse 22 It says one of the officials slapped him in the face saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? In Matthew 26, verse 67, it says they spit on his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him too. In Mark 14, verse 65, it says they blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy, who hit you? Why did God let Jesus get punched in the face, beaten in the face, slapped in the face? What did Jesus do to deserve that? He did nothing except love God with all his heart. He did nothing but love his neighbors with all his heart. He did nothing but be the perfect human being that God intended him to be. He wasn't punched for his own sins. He was punched for your sins and my sins. He wasn't crucified for his own sins. He was crucified for your sins and my sins. God has not only given us a great vision for life, he has given us a great Savior who saves us and redeems us. And when you let this truth become a tractor beam for your heart, you will know that you cannot fail. And that's what this table represents. This table is proof positive that you cannot fail. God not only wants you to hear of his love for you, but he wants you to taste and see his love for you in the body of Christ that was broken for you, in the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And when you eat this and drink this and let it go into your heart, it will change everything. It will give you a security and a significance and a hope that is bigger and brighter than your darkest nights. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this table. Lord, that through the the bread and cup, through the body and the blood, you have provided something none of us could ever ask from you. 
salvation and redemption and the renewal of all things. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to believe this, not only believe it with our heads, but relish it with our hearts. Oh, Lord, that we would know deep in our bones how loved we are by you and that you would give us a security and a significance and a hope that nothing could ever take away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.